even though it's the day after Christmas, it's still a good question to ask what Christmas is really all about. That's a perennial question that pastors ask around Christmas. What is Christmas truly all about? Well, let me tell you what it's not about. It's ultimately not about a bright evergreen. It's not about jolly old St. Nicholas. It's not about a thousands and thousands of Griswoldian lights. It's not about flying reindeer. It's not about last minute shopping on Amazon. Uh, It's not about Home Alone. It's not about poinsettias. It's not about the sounds of carols in the air. It's not about a few days off of work, which is nice. It's not about a few nights where all is calm and bright. Christmas is actually all about worship. Christmas is actually all about worship. And I'm going to I'm going to prove it to you. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter two. We're going to read Matthew chapter two. Very familiar passage of scripture, one that I imagine you've heard preached many times. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page eight oh seven. If you don't have a Bible that you can read, please take the Pew Bible as a Christmas gift from our church To you, let's listen now to what scripture says. And I want you to pay attention to the repetition of one word in this passage, the word worship. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, or by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This morning, we're just going to walk through this passage and I'm going to There's like three main scenes that I'm going to draw your attention to. And then we're going to conclude with three implications 
regarding worship. So first, first thing you notice, look at verses one and two again. The passage begins with a royal visit, a royal visit, verses one and two. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Notice in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're not surprised with regal visitors from foreign lands coming and traveling long distances to pay homage to the king of Israel. This has happened before in the Bible. You remember during the reign of King Solomon, queen of the queen, uh, queen of Sheba. Remember her? She heard about Solomon's wealth and about his wisdom. And so she traveled to Jerusalem the city of the great king, in order to hear his wisdom and in order to honor him with gifts. And if you remember that story in 1 Kings 10, we're told this, that she came to Jerusalem with a very great entourage, with camels bearing spices and much gold, 9,000 pounds of gold. Kids, those camels were tired. And she brought precious stones. This is First Kings 10 too. And when she saw the greatness of Solomon's kingdom, we're told it literally took her breath away. And she blessed the Lord God of Israel. But here in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he describes another royal visit. A visit to the king of the Jews by those who were called Magi. Do you see that in verses 1 and 2? We're told about the timing and the location. They came to Jerusalem from the east, and we're told it was during the reign of King Herod. We'll learn more about Herod in a minute. But who are, who are these wise men? Your, your Bible may say wise men, or it may say Magi. Who, who are these wise men? Well, the first thing I would note is that over the centuries, the identity of the Magi have been nearly eclipsed from what the Bible actually says. Um, with the advent of things like nativity sets, uh, carols, like we just sang earlier, We Three Kings, and preschool plays with manger scenes. Now, I'm not anti any of those things, right? So don't walk away thinking Nick, Nick doesn't like preschool you know, nativity scenes. It's not what I'm saying. But what I do think is we need to focus in on what this passage says and what the other parts of Scripture say to fix this scene clearly into our minds. We aren't told in this passage how many magi they were, there were. We're not told that they were kings in this passage. But we are told that they traveled from the east with this question, where is he who has been born? Notice, king of the Jews. And then they explain their question. For we have seen, notice this language, we saw his star and we've come to worship him. So just think about that a minute. These men, we know there were at least two of them because it's plural. These magi, these men from the east, 
have come all the way to Jerusalem. And they're saying, where's the Messiah? Where's the one born king of the Jews? Because we saw his star. Now, what's going on here? They credit the rising of a star. Uh, if, you, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, you can look at all the different explanations of what the astrological implications of this star. I'm persuaded from my studies that they're thinking of a comet. Now you think, well, wait a second. It doesn't say comet. It says star. In Greek, there's no, there's no difference between a comet and a star. It seems like from what Matthew describes here with the movement of it, that that's the, 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 the easiest understanding of what's going on here. If you have questions about that, see me afterwards. But he, here's what I want you to point out. Notice, notice, this word wise men, it, it only occurs a few times in the Old Testament scriptures. It occurs in the book of Daniel, in the Greek translation of Daniel. That's where this word magi shows up. Magi, according to the book of Daniel, were among the highest ranking officials in Babylon, in the east. And remember, back in chapter one of Matthew in the genealogy, he mentioned Babylon several times. The Magi were those who served the king. They were astronomers, they were pagan magicians, and they were royal counselors. Do you remember in the book of Daniel? Daniel talks about how he spent 70 years, he and his buddies, they spent 70 years among the Magi in the east in Babylon. And so while we're not told specifically where the Magi are from, my money, just for my opinion, my money is on Babylon. Here's why. It explains, brothers and sisters, how in the world these pagan astronomers from the east would have heard about the promise and the prophecy of the Messiah coming who would be king of the Jews and whose arrival would be marked prophetically by the appearance of a star or a light in the heavens. Where am I getting that? You can write this down for later. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. So really, don't look at me. Write this down. Look look this up later. Numbers 24, 17 is an Old Testament passage that Daniel would have been familiar with. And this passage in the Old Testament scriptures is a messianic prophecy. And what does the passage say? It's it's a passage, a prophecy that was spoken by a Gentile, a man from the east, a prophet named Balaam, who wanted to curse Israel, but he blesses Israel instead. And what does he prophesy? He says that in the last days, a star will come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. In other words, the arrival of this star signals the arrival of the scepter, the one who will rule over Israel. Now, where in the world would Babylonian wise men have heard that? I think they heard it from Daniel, maybe hundreds of years earlier when Daniel was their boss. One last example. Remember when King Neb, King Nebuchadnezzar, he had that dream in Daniel 2 and he couldn't understand it. 
And we're told he gathered all of his wise men for an interpretation and none of them understood the dream. And so he was about to kill them all. And then they said, hey, you need to ask Daniel. And so they bring Daniel in. He interprets the dream because the Lord gave him understanding and insight. He interprets the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And then we're told this, Daniel chapter two, verse 48. Then this is what Neb did as a reward. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many gifts and made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon and over all the wise men of Babylon. So you don't have to be persuaded like I am that these wise men were from Babylon. You can be wrong if you want. It's fine. But here's the point. I think that these, Bab- these magi, they made this 550 mile journey, took them about a month. But here's the point. We ought to be amazed with this royal visit that God orchestrated all of these providential events from the star or the comet in the, in the heavens to getting this prophecy concerning Messiah, the king of Israel, from the book of Numbers all the way to these pagan astronomers who believe it and who travel this whole distance searching for the one who was born king of the Jews. They come all this way to make a royal visit. That's the first thing. But then secondly, we don't just find a royal visit. We find a royal disturbance, a royal disturbance. Look at verses three to nine. The arrival and the announcement of the Magi cause a royal disturbance. Verse three, when Herod the king, and notice real quick, Herod is always called the king in this passage, which is kind of hilarious because he's not. But anyway, when when Herod the king heard this, he was, your Bible may say troubled. It may say disturbed. He was undone. And notice all Jerusalem with him. Herod, who is Herod? There's tons of Herods in the Bible. It gets very confusing in the New Testament. The Herod that's spoken of here is King Herod, Herod the Great. He he also called himself the King of the Jews. Um, The Jews didn't recognize him as the King of the Jews because he had a problem. He wasn't Jewish. He was an Edomite. But he was a, a puppet king that Rome set on the throne there. Um, And Herod did a lot of stuff. Herod was an incredible architect. He was an incredible builder. If you go to Israel, most of the stuff you go over there to see were things that Herod constructed that are still around. Um, He built the second temple in in Jerusalem. That was his his, uh, uh, handiwork. He built the amazing port at Caesarea, which had never never been done before in the history of the world. Had someone made a port, uh, a harbor out of something that was just a natural shore. It was incredible. But Herod the Great was also a paranoid, bloodthirsty psychopath. That was the other downside to Herod. He murdered his own wife and he murdered his three sons because he thought they were plotting against him. So, So you can imagine, you can imagine when he hears that A king has been born in his region, the king of the Jews. This would have really 
disturbed him. Uh, historians tell us that Caesar Augustus once remarked, I would, be, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son because I would live longer. This is the kind of maniac we're talking about here. And so he was troubled. He was disturbed in the Old Testament scriptures in the Septuagint. This word is used disturbed when a, 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 a military battle happens where you have an inferior army that's going against a mightier, superior army. And so Herod is like he, he understands he's facing a superior king here and he's shaken. He's disturbed. It's like Belshazzar in Daniel 5 when he saw the writing on the wall. Remember, he was he was he, he changed his color. He was alarmed. He was utterly defeated. But notice, it's not just Herod who's disturbed. Did you notice all Jerusalem was disturbed? Now, this this doesn't make any sense. You would think of all places. The people in Jerusalem the city of the great king would be thrilled. You would think the city of Zion, the city of David, would be thrilled that the Messiah has come. But they're not. They're upset. They're disturbed. They're bothered by this news. And so notice what Herod does next, verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, that's just the Jewish religious leaders, the, the leaders at the temple and the leaders in the, the teachers of the law, the lawyers. He gets the lawyers together and he says, where's the Messiah going to be born? Verse five, they told him and they quote from Micah chapter five, verse two, the passage you read earlier in Bethlehem of Judea. So it was written by the prophet and they quote Micah chapter five, verse two. Now, if you're here, you're not a follower of Christ. There are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament scriptures concerning the Messiah that only find their fulfillment in Jesus. And this is one of them. The Bible says that the son of David will be born in the city of David, where David was from, Bethlehem. Bethlehem, it was, it was a, you know, we sing, oh, little town of Bethlehem. It was a little town back then. And it's a little town today. It's insignificant. The only, thing that, the only thing that they're known for is that David was from there and Jesus was born there. Now, what we find in this passage, what we find is that Bethlehem, it's only about five or six miles south of Jerusalem. It's in the fertile hill country of Judea. It's cradled in between two ridges along this road that goes down to Egypt, this ancient highway. But other than the fact that, that David was from there, it's kind of an insignificant place. And yet, when Herod and when Jerusalem and the scribes, when all of them hear about Messiah coming, they don't make the trip. It would take them less than a day to get there. They don't make the trip. But Herod... He begins to plot and scheme because he's threatened by this. Verse seven, Herod summons the wise men secretly and they ascertain from them 
what time the star or the comet had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now we know from the rest of Matthew chapter two that that Herod didn't have genuine desires to worship Christ. He wanted to know the precise location of the Messiah because he wanted to murder him. In fact, when he finds out that the wise men double-crossed him a little bit later in the chapter, just like Pharaoh, he orders the murder of children in the region, sons two years and younger, just like Pharaoh. He wants to destroy the deliverer who has arrived. Because you see, Herod is of the seed of the serpent. And he's at war with the one who's the promised savior, the seed of the woman, just like Pharaoh of old. Verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way. So we go from a a royal visit, a royal disturbance, and the last scene, the scene that we're waiting for, the scene that we depict in our Advent is verses 9 to 12. We find a royal celebration, a royal celebration. Look at verse 9. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And I know I keep mentioning comment, but... Again, if you want to know why I believe it's, it's because of that verse that seems to describe precisely what it would look like to follow the, 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 the comet in the sky. Um, what's interesting is this verse, it reminds you the language that Matthew uses in this verse. It's very similar to the language described in the Old Testament scriptures when the people of Israel were following the glory of the Lord. In the Exodus, remember that? Exodus 13, 21 says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud. Notice this, to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. Very similar. The the wise men leave Jerusalem and they follow this heavenly light just like Israel followed the pillar of cloud and fire from Egypt. They arrive there. You'll notice they arrive in Bethlehem. And this is amazing. This heavenly light leads them to the light of the world. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary And notice this language, they fell down and they worshiped him. Now, you can see the contrast between Herod and the wise men. The the, the contrast between being greatly troubled with the arrival of the king versus their wholehearted adoration of the one who has been born king of the Jews. Now, what we know of 
this scene because sometimes we have the wise men right there at the manger in our in our um, what's that thing called? What's the figurines? What's that thing? Nativity. I always forget that nativity scene. We'll usually have the wise men right there with the with the the shepherds and with Mary and Joseph. You always want to put the wise men a, a few weeks off, maybe you know, just put them off distance uh, because. We know from later in the chapter when Herod decides to, to kill all the, the, the children, he says two and, young, two and under. So it's likely, given the chronology here, that Jesus, he isn't baby Jesus in the manger. It's going to be Jesus who's a little bit older. He's probably between one and two. So new, still young, but not, not newborn infant. And so the Magi, upon seeing the Savior, they're filled with joy. And they notice this language. They fall down before him. They prostrate themselves before the king. And we're told they worshiped him. Sometimes this word can be used in the Bible to, to, to indicate that there's sh- someone showing someone uh, respect. But given the context of this, And given the fact that Matthew is a Jew who's writing to other Jews, uh, it's just not the kind of word you would use. These magi, these pagan Gentile astronomers are bowing down and worshiping this child as God. And we know that. Look at verse 11. What do they do? They honor him with gifts. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. I don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but gold, that, if you go to visit a king, you always bring gold. That's kind of the thing you do. That's an appropriate royal gift for his kingship. Frankincense, that's just a, that's a very expensive, beautiful smelling incense. If you read the Old Testament, it, it shows up often in the worship of God's people in the tabernacle and in the temple. So if you read the Old Testament, it was always used in the grain offerings. You can read this in Leviticus chapter two. Frankincense was stored in a special spot in the temple courts, and it was often sprinkled among offerings that the people gave at the temple. Myrrh was a perfume. It shows up really two, two times in the Bible. It was, it was used to mix with wine as an as a, as a, as a anesthetic. So you remember when Jesus is on the cross dying, they lift him up some, some wine mixed with myrrh to try to dull the pain. Um, and it's often used for anointing bodies for burial. Um, Jesus' body was anointed with myrrh. Uh, in John 19. So these are the gifts that the Magi bring to Jesus. And many, many commentators have commented on this. Gold seems to represent his royalty and frankincense, his deity, and myrrh, his humanity. I'm struck as we look at this is that just, just like the Queen of Sheba, what did she bring to honor Solomon? She brought gold and she brought spices. And what do we find here? One greater than Solomon is here. Magi from the east, Gentiles bow down before the Savior. 
They honor the king of Israel as was written about in Isaiah 60, which promised a day that would come, namely arise, arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen and the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then Isaiah says that the wealth of the nations shall come to you. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Gold and spices. The very thing that the Babylonians took from the temple and carried off into Babylon when they destroyed the temple. Isaiah 39.2. Those very things are being brought back to Jerusalem to honor the king of Israel. So Matthew in his genealogy told us that when Messiah comes, what's over? The exile. The exile from Babylon is finished when Messiah arrives. And these gifts being returned from exile, as it were, are a sign that the exile is finally over. And we read in verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. Well, brothers and sisters, what are we supposed to take away from this passage? I said at the very beginning what this passage means for us. The implication that Matthew wants us to take away is really summed up in one word, worship. The central truth of this text is this, Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, deserves worship. Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, deserves worship. You'll notice again, three times in this section, the same word shows up, worship. Verse two, worship. Verse eight, worship. Verse 11, worship. This passage is woven together with the worship of Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. So I want to draw three implications for us regarding worship. First implication, number one, Jesus deserves global worship. Jesus deserves global worship. Matthew's gospel begins and ends with a signal that the one who was born the son of Abraham will receive honor and glory and worship among all nations. We're told in Matthew chapter one in his genealogy, there are four Gentiles referenced in his genealogy. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And the Matthew's gospel ends with the risen savior saying, go make disciples of all nations in the great commission. And what we have in this passage is shocking the first people in Matthew's gospel to worship the king of the Jews are Gentiles. The very first people in Matthew's gospel who bow down, who revere, who worship, who adore, and who give gifts to the Savior are pagan astronomers from Babylon. That's amazing. 
And so what Matthew is indicating to us is that he received. Jesus doesn't say, I'm not, he's probably two. So maybe you don't see the Magi turned away and saying, you need to stop that. No, no, he receives it because he deserves global worship. Christmas is a reminder that all nations must worship the Christ and that all nations will worship the Christ. He died to purchase a people from every tribe and nation and tongue, that there will be a people purchased by his death and resurrection before the throne of God from every tribe, every nation and every tongue. A people from all nations will worship the Messiah. And so he calls us as his people to make disciples of the nations, to pray for God, to raise up laborers for the harvest, to go forth into the harvest fields. He calls us to give and to support and to go to take the gospel to the ends of the earth because he deserves global worship. And I love how the Bible ends. This little scene in Matthew chapter two is a It's just a a glimmer of what's coming. How does the Bible end? The Bible ends with the nations worshiping the God of Israel. What we find in Revelation 21 is that in the new heavens and new earth, there is no more need for a sun or a star to shine. Because John tells us in Revelation 21, the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. And by his light, the nations will walk. And we're told by John that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into the city to honor the lamb. Matthew two is a glimpse of what's coming because Jesus deserves global worship. So when you pray on Christmas, you should pray the Lord's prayer. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Number two, number two, Jesus deserves global worship, but he also deserves number two, Genuine worship. He deserves genuine worship. If you look at Matthew chapter two, basically from verse three down to verse nine, you have an example of completely the opposite response that you ought to have to the Savior. If you want to think about it, you've got the introduction of verses one and two. Verses three to nine is like false, fake worship. And then verses uh, 9b to the end of verse 12, that's genuine worship. And so this is a passage teaching us the difference between fake and phony worship and genuine worship. So if you think about it, this passage, you've got three responses to Jesus. And these three responses are still around today. What are the responses? First response, some people are like Herod. They hear the gospel and they are hostile to Jesus. They hate him. 
and they hate Christians. That's the first. There's a, a hostility to the Savior. That's some, of, that's, that's some people. The, the second response would really be the chief priests and the scribes and probably most of Jerusalem. That would be an indifference to Christ. That's going to be a lot of people in this world. They don't hate Jesus. They just don't care. Some of you might be here this morning. You're here because someone invited you, but really you don't care. You're, you're indifferent to the Savior. That would be the second group. But then you have the third group, the Magi. They are those who worship him. They're not hostile to Jesus. They're certainly far from indifferent to Jesus. They worship him. Now, friend, listen, if you want to know what a Christian does, a Christian doesn't just have a lot of respect for Jesus. A Christian doesn't just have a lot of uh, good thoughts about Jesus. Christians worship Jesus, the one who lived and died 2000 years ago and rose again as our God and Savior. We sang earlier, we three kings, right? King and God and sacrifice. That's why we worship the Savior. He is our God. And I love that in Matthew's gospel, it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter what social status you have, whether you're high up or whether you're low down. It doesn't matter whether you're young or you're old, whether you're rich or you're poor. Jesus summons people to respond to him with genuine worship. When you read through Matthew's gospel, who do you see responding with hearts of faith and repentance and worship? Here's just a a list. We find the religious experts rejecting Jesus. But who do we find worshiping him? Not those who are in high, high authority. The blind believe. And then a Canaanite woman. And then little children. And then a Roman centurion. And a pagan Gentile. And we even see Gentile wise men here responding with worship. Every single one of us in this room is an unlikely convert. And what we find in the Bible is that it's clear that we don't we don't respond to Jesus with anything less than genuine heartfelt worship. Listen to what Psalm 2 warns. Unfortunately, this psalm was fulfilled in the first century, but it gives a warning to us today. Listen to what it says, Psalm 2. O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Here's the response. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
That's the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is to respond to the king, to to serve him with fear, to rejoice with trembling. And the way we respond is by receiving him. First and foremost, receiving him as king in the empty hands of faith. Jesus deserves global worship. He deserves genuine worship. Thirdly and finally, he deserves glad worship. He deserves glad worship. My favorite verse in the whole passage is verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That that is a lot of gladness in one verse. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Those of us who've read the gospel of Matthew, we know the rest of the story. And even in this passage, we find reasons to rejoice that not only God has sent a king into the world, but he has sent a king who is the savior of sinners like us. There's little glints in this passage, little hints of what Jesus has come to do. Right at the beginning, we see that this king will be opposed, that this king will cause a division between those who worship him and those who hate him. But even that little phrase in verse, right there in the middle of verse two, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Do you see that? That seems like an innocuous phrase, the king of the Jews. But for Matthew, it's really important because it only shows up twice in his gospel. It shows up here at the beginning and it shows up one other time. The very end of the gospel of Matthew, there's another group of Gentiles who gather before the Savior. And we're told they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And then bowing before him, they mocked him. Saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. See, friend, the reason that Christmas is good news of great joy, the reason that we can be glad is that this king who has come was born to die. And he did die. He died in our place for our sins. He rose again for our justification. He loved us to endure the sin and the shame, the rebuke, the wounds, because he died for our sins. And so Christian, you can respond this day with joy. You can respond with joy because your Savior deserves glad worship.
Let me close with another Christmas sermon excerpt from someone named Augustine of Hippo. This is what he said to his congregation in Africa many, many years ago, one Christmas Sunday. He said, let the whole world rejoice for he came down for our salvation. The one by whom the world was made, the creator of Mary, born of Mary, the son of David, yet Lord of David, the seed of Abraham who existed before Abraham, the fashioner of this earth, fashioned on this earth, the creator of heaven, created as man under the light of heaven. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us walk in his light and let us exult and be glad in him all of our days. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have brought our king into the world to be our savior. All because of your incredible love that you have for us, even when we were enemies, even when we were far from you. You brought Christ into the world to bring us peace. And so we pray that we would respond with repentance and faith and joy. We love you and we praise you for it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.